Turn with me to John chapter 1. And look down. We have been through the first 18 verses, which are known as the prologue. We're going to start in verse 19 this morning. And if you would, read along with me. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, well, that, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Father, your word is life to us. Your word is you. It is truth. And it is life. And we pray this morning that as we study your word, as we have read your word, that you would speak to us individually, that you would speak to us corporately, that you would give us ears to hear, that we would be aware that you are talking this morning. And so, Lord, help all of us to listen well. And Lord, may you help me to speak well that these dear friends of mine might meet with you and find Christ this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In the prologue, we are introduced to Jesus. In verse 1, we are told that he is God, he is the creator. He has become one of us. In verse 14, the Word made flesh. And at the end of the prologue, in verse 18, we are told that Jesus, in essence, explains God. 
No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, speaking of Jesus, has made him known. Jesus explains God to us. He makes God known to us. He interprets who God is for us. He narrates God. When we look at Jesus, Jesus tells us the story of God. If we want to know what who God is, we look at the Son. If we want to know what God thinks, we ask what Jesus thinks. If we want to know what's on God's heart, we look at and see what's on Jesus' heart. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the fullest expression and the exact representation of God. The whole shape of John's gospel is a testimony, a witness explaining who Jesus is and why he has come. And what we will discover again and again and again, and this is the challenge for for those who preach through John's gospel, is that the theme of John's gospel, um, the major theme, simply never changes. And so each week you can end up with the same application, the same expression of belief. That is what the gospel of John is about, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you might have life. And we will see that revealed again and again and again. I was reading a commentary and one, one commentator was saying that, that many pastors, by the time they get to chapter 7, just give up because they have no more, nothing else to say. They just, it's just going to say the same thing over and over again. But, but there's a reason for that. We are not going to give up. And when we're in chapter 16 and chapter 19 and chapter 21, we are Even if we keep seeing John telling us, teaching us, exhorting us to believe, it's because we need to believe. It's because we have a temptation towards unbelief. That is is the human condition. And we are reading a gospel. We are reading a narrative, a story of Jesus Christ the Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah who has come, who we want to know better and who we want to believe in that we might have life in his name. And is there not anyone in this room who has been through a day where the circumstances are so difficult and so challenging, you don't feel like you have life? And John writes that we might believe And we will discover that again and again in John's gospel. And we are going to discover who we are to believe in Jesus. What we are to believe about Jesus, that he is God's son. Why we are to believe in him, that we might have life in his name and how we are to believe in him. And in this gospel, John is a, John the Baptist is a key witness. Now, to not confuse you, because there's two Johns in this story, John, the writer of the gospel, the apostle, the disciple, and then John the Baptist, When I refer to John, I'm going to be referring to John the Baptist. To refer to the writer of the gospel, I'm going to call him the evangelist. Because that's what this gospel is. It's evangelism. It's the evangelist John writing that you might believe. 
And so just so we don't confuse anybody, I don't confuse anybody, I, I, I want to write, I want to use John to talk about John the Baptist, who is, has been sent by God to give a testimony, to bear witness about who Jesus is. Now, now that is crucial to John's gospel, the evangelist's gospel, that it, it bears witness to who Jesus is. And as you read through the evangelist's gospel, you're going to discover there are numerous witnesses to who Jesus is, not just the Baptist. There are numerous witnesses. Yes, there is John the Baptist in verse 7. Uh, when, when John opened, the evangelist opens up, he says, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came to bear witness. Yes, that's one of the witnesses in the gospel. But Jesus bears witness about himself in this gospel, about who he is. In John 8, the Father bears witness to who Jesus is in this gospel. The scripture Jesus and John writes bear witness to who he is in the gospel. The Holy Spirit bears witness to who he is in the gospel. The crowds bear witness to who he is in this gospel. And his disciples bear witness in John 15 to who he is. But God has ordained one man with a specific task. And that man is named John. There was a man sent from God. He came as a witness. Now, witnesses, if you have ever been in a courtroom, and, and I have, um, not for the reasons you think, but if you've ever been in a courtroom, witnesses can often have conflicting testimonies and stories. I was reading a, a, a list of witness and lawyer questions. Um, the lawyer asks, how old is your son, the one living with you? And the witness replies, 38 or 35. I can't remember which. Well, how long has he lived with you? The lawyer asks. Witness, 45 years. <laughs> and then another said, the lawyer says, what is your brother-in-law's name? And the witness says, Barofkin. And the lawyer says, well, what's his first name? And the witness says, I can't remember. The lawyer says, he's been your brother-in-law for, year, for years and you can't remember his name? And the witness says, no, I tell you, I'm too excited. And pointing at his brother-in-law, Nathan, for heaven's sake, tell him your name. <laughs> Witnesses don't always get it right. Human, but this human witness named John is totally reliable. Why is he reliable? Because he has been filled with the Spirit and he has been sent by God to be a testimony, to be a witness to who Jesus is, to, about the Christ. But his witness is causing a major stir in the area. John, the evangelist, doesn't record this, but Matthew does in chapter 3. You don't need to turn there, but in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. So it wasn't a small group of people. It was all of Jerusalem, all of Judea, all of the region. 
I mean, just think about it. There must have been thousands out there witnessing John witnessing. They're listening to this witness. And they were baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. And so he's stirring up this crowd. And then in verse 19, we see as this testimony of John, the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to specifically question him. Who are you? What are you doing here? Because understand in, in Palestinian times, in this, in this season, the, there, the, the people of God were passionately waiting a Messiah. They were anticipating. They were longing for a Messiah, any Messiah. Some wanted a Davidic Messiah, a king who was going to conquer. Others wanted a spiritual Messiah, like a a prophet in Deuteronomy 18. And others still wanted a political Messiah who was going to deliver them from Roman oppression. They were all looking for a Messiah. And what they longed for, they did not understand. But God, as their sovereign creator, knew what they needed. And he was more aware of their desperate need for a savior, a Messiah who would deliver them, not from the politics of the day, not from oppression of the day. They needed a savior who would deliver them from the slavery that they battled within, the sin that they battled within. But this, this coming of John, this proclamation is perplexing. It is, it just doesn't fit in the paradigm of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests and the lawyers who are coming out to question him. Who are you? Well, he confessed and he did not deny, but confessed. Understand, John, John is, Jesus says that John is the greatest man who ever lived. Then he also talks about him being the least of all the saints. But here is this man, John, who has this prominent role. Thousands are coming out to him. He is baptizing. He's calling for the repentance of sin. And the Pharisees come to him. The Jews, who are you? And his immediate response is, I'm not the Messiah. I am not the Christ. Then they ask him again, well, what then? Are you Elijah? They know their Old Testament. And understand that, that Elijah dressed in a similar fashion <clears throat> and lived in a wilderness similar to John. So they're, they're making the connection between Elijah and John the Baptist because of the way he's dressing and where he is doing this and what he is preaching. And so they're wondering, is this Elijah? Because in Malachi... It's prophesied that Elijah will come before the Savior. But John replies, I am not. 
And then they said, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And, and in Deuteronomy 18, there is one who Moses writes about who is a prophet who will come and he will lead the people. And so they're wondering, is this who he is? And again, John says, no. So they are just, I mean, I, I wish you could be there. This isn't this, it isn't a you're sitting down over coffee conversation at Panera. So who are you? Are you Jesus? Nah. Are you Elijah? No, nope, not today. Are you, are you the prophet? No. Oh, okay. Well, who are you? That's not what they're doing. They are, John's stirring up controversy. The people wanted a Messiah. And so they're just like, well, then if you're not these people, who the heck are you? What are you doing here? Why are you here? We have to give an answer to those who sent us. Can you imagine going back? So going back to your leaders, who was he? I don't know. Well, who did he say he was? I don't know. Well, then what were you doing out there? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, there's this, they didn't know what to say. And and so they're saying, well, what do you say about yourself? Because we've asked you. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now in Isaiah 40, verse 3, Isaiah is prophesying, make straight the way of, I am a voice crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now understand back in Isaiah's time, what he is referring to is the roads leading up to Jerusalem were terrible roads and to get back to Jerusalem because that's where God dwelled in the temple. The the people could not get back there. And and so there's this practical idea of the roads being made smooth so that people can return to God. There's also a spiritual element to that that Isaiah is prophesying. And that's what John is referring to. He's saying, listen, I am a voice of the one of a road back to God. Just as the Jews in Isaiah's time were going to Jerusalem to meet with God, I am a voice about, I am a road back to God through Jesus Christ. I am leading you to Jesus Christ. That's what John is saying here. And he is saying, I am a voice. He's doing exactly what God has commissioned him to do. He is pointing to Jesus and away from himself. This passage here is not about John the Baptist. This this passage is not about John the Baptist's witness. That is just part of the story. This passage is about John pointing to Christ. That's what this passage is about. Because John is saying, listen, I am a voice Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Word made flesh. I am just a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And in verses 22 through 28, it's clear John gives them no satisfaction. In fact, he confuses them even more. If you're not one of these people... He says in verse, in verse 25, um, they say, and then why are you, in verse 24, why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not a prophet, then why are you here? Why are you baptizing? And John re- responds, 
John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John, John wisely again focuses their vision not upon him, but upon the one who is coming, the one whose sandal he is not worthy to untie. He is baptizing with water for the forgiveness of sins. But, but understand, uh, this, is, this is a Jewish ritual back then. Back in, in these ancient times, if someone wanted to become a Jew, a proselyte, what he would do to get rid of the pollution and filth and uncleanness of the world is that he would do a, pureful, a, a ritual purification, a self-water baptism. Because it was a sign that this person was unclean. Now think about John telling these Pharisees they needed to be baptized. What is he telling them? You are filthy. You are unclean. And if I'm, if I'm the one baptizing and I'm not worthy to untie his sandals, what does that make you? Do you realize how that would stir anger and controversy up at this moment? What they miss is that John's baptism is to prepare them for Christ's coming. And, and interestingly, he the evangelist makes a comment here. He says, John answered them and, bapt- and says, Among you stands one you do not know. Verse 26. Among you stands one you do not know. Look back at verse 10 in chapter 1. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. That is the problem. That is what John's witness is. You do not know the Christ. You are unclean. You need to be cleansed. Not just this, not the waters of baptism, but as we'll read later on, you need to be cleansed by the only one who can cleanse you, the baptizer himself, who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit, because it's the Spirit that regenerates, not water. It's the Spirit that cleans us, not water. In the other gospel accounts, the writers reveal how large these crowds are, but many, especially the Jewish leaders, did not believe him. They did not believe the witness. And by not believing the witness, they did not believe in the Messiah he pointed to. They did not know him. They rejected him. As we read in verse 11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. They did not know him. John John is making a case for their need for a Messiah. And John in this sees himself not as somebody important, but just somebody totally unworthy. And the more that John points to himself as unworthy, the more he points to Christ as glorified and worthy. 
John labors to have no one look at him but only to the Christ. And this is what the evangelist wants us to see today. His narrative focus is not about John the Baptist, but about the Savior. Because John's witness is true, to those who believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, they will find life in his name. So here, here just quickly, my, my main points in verses, and they're in verses 29 through 34. John's witness reveals the following about Jesus so that we might believe in him and we might have life in his name. Four things that he identifies. First, he identifies that he is the Christ. Secondly, he identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God. Thirdly, the Baptist identifies Jesus as the baptizer. And fourthly, he identifies Jesus as the Son of God. He is the Christ. He is the Lamb of God. He is the baptizer. And he is the Son of God. Now, there are more titles. And and John brings them out. And we'll look at them next week. But these are more... and, and, And... he only just, we're sticking with just a, a shorter passage this morning, but these titles, Christ, Lamb of God, Baptism, Son of God, they are more than titles. They are John's proclamation of the Word who has become flesh. Verses 24 through 27 He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. John does more than deny that he is the anointed one in verse 24 because he is is looking to identify Jesus as the anointed one, the promised one. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are not the Christ and you're not Elijah and not the prophet, John answers, well, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even He who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. That is the moment where he is first identifying Jesus as the Messiah. He is identifying in those subtle words, I am not worthy to untie his sandals. Now understand, in in ancient times, slaves were to do everything to care for their masters. The one thing slaves were not required to do at this time was to untie their master's sandals. Because it was such a filthy act. Slaves were not required to do that at this time. So for John to say, I'm not even unworthy, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. Do you understand where he's going with that? And, and, and think, think ahead to John 13, where Jesus doesn't just untie sandals. He washes feet. And John is subtly here saying, look, this is who he is. And, and this is who I am. I am I am a man. I am a sinner. I am so low. This is who I am in in respect to Jesus Christ. Now, understand, by this time, Jesus had already been baptized by John. The evangelist doesn't give us this information. But by this time... He had been already baptized by John. Now, Jesus and John were cousins. John is six months older than, six months to a year older than Jesus. They're cousins. 
but they lived in, in very different places. And so there is a possibility that John and Jesus never met. They, they, even though they were cousins, they may not have known one another. But that's not critical to the passage. What's important is, is that up until John baptizes Jesus, he has no clue he is the Son of God. He has no clue he is the Messiah. God has spoken to John and said, Look, John, you will know who the Messiah is when you see the Spirit of God rest upon him and anoint him. Then you will know who he is. That's where we pick it up in verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him because he had already baptized him prior. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he he identifies Jesus as the Messiah, but now he identifies him as the Lamb of God. What What does he mean by giving Jesus this title? He's the only New Testament writer who actually uses the phrase, the Lamb of God. The Jews would have been very familiar with an idea of a lamb and sacrifice. That would have been very fresh to them. Lambs were used in the daily sacrifice of the temple. You could not walk by the temple without hearing the bleeding of a dying lamb and the stench and smell of blood being poured out upon the altar. More specifically, in the Old Testament, we see sacrificial lambs in very specific situations. Genesis 22, God provides a lamb to be sacrificed rather than Isaac. Exodus 12, the Passover lamb whose blood is spilled that death may not come. Isaiah 53, a lamb who is led to slaughter, a suffering servant. All of these references to a lamb to slaughter hang in the background as John proclaims, knowing as he has seen the Spirit resting upon Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now understand, here he is. He's been baptizing for the forgiveness of sins and he knows that that was just, that was in a sense temporary. It wasn't for the cleansing from within. It was a cleansing from without. And he sees Jesus and he declares, Behold the Lamb who takes away your sin. This is vivid imagery to those listening to John the Baptist and to those who who read this gospel. Now, we are far removed from the days of temple sacrifice. And so the sounds and the stench of animals being slaughtered is not very real to us. But I'll tell you what is real to us. What is real to us is the destructive nature of sin and all its consequences. What is real to us is the slavery of sin and the bondage it puts us in. What is real to us is the separation we have from God and the wrath that we are under if we are not trusting in Christ. John paints this imagery of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Bruce Milne writes of this. He says, 
few aspects of the gospel need greater or more frequent reaffirmation than this one. How many people struggle for survival beneath the crushing burdens of guilt? But Christ, the Lamb of God, really has borne it all for us. He says to us today, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Your sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Without exception, every kind of sin and evil is covered. There is no sin too heinous, no wickedness too terrible, no habitual failure too often repeated that cannot be taken away by Christ, our heavenly Lamb. Let me read that again. There is no sin too heinous, no wickedness too terrible, no habitual failure too often repeated that cannot be taken away by Christ, our heavenly lamb. Whatever pattern of sin you struggle with, whatever serious sin you have committed, whatever guilt weighs upon your shoulder, the crushing guilt of sin, there is nothing that Jesus cannot take away because he was the sacrificial lamb. He is the Lamb of God. John was water baptizing for the forgiveness of sins. It was a remedial action. It was an act of cleansing. But he identifies our problem as much deeper. It's not an external uncleanness. It's an internal one. We need to be cleaned from within. And he does that because he is the baptizer. Oh, I love that. After me, in verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now, do you understand what John is saying here about Jesus? He's referring back to verse 1 even though he, he's not the writer, he, this is the, the truth of verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is referring to Jesus as the Creator, as the Eternal One who was always before. John is older. So to say that he not only ranks before me, but he was before me, John gets it about who Jesus is. And he says, he not only ranks before me because he was before me, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. God sent John to do this, to baptize, because it was through this baptism that God was going to identify Jesus to John through the coming of the Spirit upon Jesus. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. He says that again. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, get that. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. You are not born again until the Spirit is regenerates you from within. You are, in a sense, baptized with the Spirit at regeneration. This is what John is saying. To say he's just the baptizer of the Spirit can sound like, oh yeah, kind of like just baptizing in water. No, this is all about being born again. 
This is all about the Spirit of God coming in and cleansing you from within, baptizing you, making you clean from within, from the sin that has entangled you and enslaved you and has led you to the wrath and destruction from God. This is the baptizer who has come and has set you free. And so John is saying, look, what I've done is nothing. What Jesus will do He is the baptizer. He will give you his spirit, not just to regenerate you. He will give you his spirit who will rest upon you forever. He will never remove his spirit from you. Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Matthew 28, lo, I am with you always till the end of the age. No, he doesn't just regenerate us, but the Spirit counsels us. The Spirit convicts us of sin. It transforms us. The Spirit comforts us. The Spirit empowers us. The Spirit dwells in us. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you if you have put your faith in Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Baptizer. And finally, John ends this section with, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. He, he kind of summarizes everything about Jesus by saying, listen, this is who he is. He's the Son of God. He is the one who has come. And this is not just the Son of God. Do you remember what happened when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan? What was spoken over Jesus? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He is not just the Son of God. He is the beloved Son of God. And as God's Son, John reaffirms Jesus' deity. Jesus is God. And as God's son, as his beloved son, he is loved by his father. And this is what makes the sacrifice of Christ so amazing. He's not like one of many sons. Which one will I pick to go be a sacrifice? This is God's only son. And his beloved son who he would send to suffer and die on a cross for our sins that we might be reconciled to God. God's love for us is powerfully demonstrated by giving up his only son. The son of God is more than a title. It is the full expression, the full expression of God's plan of salvation for us. That's who he is. He is the Messiah. He is the lamb of God. He is the baptizer And he is the son of God. What does this mean for us? If you were in that crowd, you would have seen this that day. You would have seen some in that crowd had come because they were curious about who John the Baptist was and what he was talking about. But many others in that crowd mocked and ridiculed his witness about Jesus which meant they were ultimately mocking and rejecting Jesus himself because John is a man sent by God. But a few believed. And to those who did believe, as we read in verse 12 of chapter 1, 
But all, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. For those who believe that he is the Messiah, the glorified lamb, the mighty baptizer, the son of God, it is those who he gives the right to become children of God. Joseph Ryan in his commentary on this says this, Jesus is strong to save you. He is able to save your soul from sin and hell and destruction and to keep you safe for the father. He is not a weak lamb, but the powerful lamb of God who baptizes you in the Holy Spirit, cleansing you, renewing you, giving you new life. Here is what the evangelist wants you to know about Jesus. If he can do all that for you, if he can cleanse you, if he can keep you safe for the Father, if he can renew you, if he can give you life, if he can free you from the slavery of sin, if he can do all those things, is there anything he cannot do for you in Christ? Is there anything? This is what the evangelist wants you to know today. If God will, is willing to sacrifice his own son because he loves you, if he is willing to do all these things through his son, is there anything today he cannot do for you? Whatever your circumstances are, he is there in all his power and his love caring for you. Do you battle with a besetting sin? He can, he can overcome. Do you have an illness that causes constant suffering? He can give you strength to endure and to heal you. Have you had a financial setback that is overwhelming? The Lord is your shepherd. You shall not want. Have you had a relational loss that feels like a betrayal? He can give you the power to forgive. Do you battle with depression that never seems to end? Only he can give you hope because you can find life in his name when you believe he is the Messiah, the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, if he can save your soul, is there anything he can't do for you as his child? Is there anything? Could you possibly go home today thinking, there's something God can't do for me today? There isn't anything he can't do for you. And there isn't anything he won't do for you because he's your father and he loves you. John 20, 31 tells us that he came that we might believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. Do you have life in his name today? John 10, 10 tells us that he came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Brothers and sisters, is there anything in light of what he has already done? Is there anything he cannot do for you? And the only thing you need to do, there's only one thing you need to do, just pray. Just talk to God. And there are times when he knows your need. I mean, he knows your need before you even express it. And there are times he meets your need without you even expressing it. But he wants us to come to him and talk to him. Do you trust him today? Do you trust him today? Not only with your eternal soul, but with your life right now. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that each one would go home today more aware of what you can do 
and not aware of anything that you cannot do because you are the all-sovereign God who's all-powerful and you are all-knowing and there is nothing you cannot do. May they be aware and confident that whatever circumstances they face today, you can do it. In Jesus' name, amen.